Thank you. You may be seated. It's always a privilege and a pleasure for me to be back here at the first church that I served right after I finished uh, seminary. It always seems like a little bit of a, a homecoming. And uh, I was reminded of the homecoming that we will have to heaven when I heard the men's chorus uh, this morning. I think that's probably as close to heaven as we're going to get on this side of earth. And so I feel uh, it's going to be a little hard to follow that with my uh, sermon this morning. But I think it'll be a fairly easy sermon to follow because it only has one point. Uh, the longer I've been in the ministry, I've tried to cut my sermons down. So uh, I've gone from three to two most often and now one. And eventually if I keep working at it, I'm sure I'll get to a pointless sermon as well. Our scripture reading this morning is found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. And this is what God says, Mark 10, 35 through 45. And James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to him saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are, do are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And hearing this, the 10 began to feel indignant with James and John. And calling them to themselves, to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his word. A mother was having a heart-to-heart -heart talk with her little boy one day. She said, always remember that you are here to serve others. The little boy thought about that for a moment and then he asked, well, what are the others here for? Have you ever felt like that? You're the one who is always doing things for others. You're the one who your coworkers depend upon to get their work done. You're the one who always fills in when others don't show up. 
You're the one who always volunteers when no one else will help. You're the one that the church calls when they need a volunteer in the nursery or someone to work in the kitchen or someone to do odd jobs around the church. You may even feel that people take advantage of you. What are the others here for? You may even feel used. Well, what's so terrible about that? Did you ever see the movie, The Last Emperor? It tells the life story of Puyi, who at the turn of the 20th century was crowned the last emperor of China at the age of three. The movie covers the history of China from the forbidden, from the isolation of the forbidden city uh, to the chaotic era of the warlords to the tragic years of the Japanese occupation to the volatile years of the Red Guard and finally to the modern nation of China under communist rule. Throughout the movie, you see Puyi trapped by forces beyond his control. He wants to bring reform to his country, but he is defeated repeatedly by the march of events that are larger than himself, and quite frankly, by his own self-indulgence. As a child, he is spoiled hopelessly by the 1,000 eunuchs who wait on him night and day for anything that he wants, but also steal him blind. After Puyi is ousted from the Forbidden City by the Chinese warlords, he comes under the protection of the Japanese, where he lives the life of a pampered playboy. But then his desire to rule again brings him to the point of actually cooperating with the Japanese and he is installed as the puppet ruler of the state of Manchukuo. And he tries desperately to use the Japanese for his own ends, but he only succeeds in being used by the Japanese for their own ends. After World War II, Puyi is given a 10-year sentence in a communist prison for the purpose of rehabilitation. And it's there in this prison that Puyi has a confrontation with the governor of the prison after the governor had saved him from committing suicide. In a very dramatic scene in the movie, Puyi lashes out at the governor. Why will you not leave me alone? The only thing you care about is that I am useful to you. And with those lines, Puyi pours out a lifetime of hostility over being used by other people. Being used by the eunuchs, being used by his wives, being used by the Japanese, being used by the Russians, being used by everybody. And Puyi is quite certain that the governor, too, just wants to use him. He says, you don't care about me. 
You only saved me from committing suicide because I'm good propaganda for you. The only thing you care about is that I am useful to you. And the governor of the prison looks calmly at Puyi and he asks him, is it so terrible to be useful? And with that simple question, the governor of the prison touched the one-time emperor of China at his most vulnerable point. All of his life, self-interest had dominated. All of Puyi's life, the only things that mattered to him were power and position. Everything he had ever done, he had done for himself. But the question that confronted him in that prison was, is it so terrible to be useful? We live in a society that is dominated by self-interest. Just below the surface of every kind of transaction or interaction is the question, what's in it for me? Just look at the state of our politics today. The slogans of our time are self-empowerment, take care of number one, love yourself, you are somebody. Be all that you can be. And we too are challenged by the question of that governor. Is it so terrible to be useful? Things weren't much different in Jesus' day. These same attitudes prevailed even among Jesus' disciples. These men were driven by self-interest. They were interested in power and position and all the worldly perks that come with those things. They didn't care about being useful to others. They only cared about using others for their own self, selfish purposes. Just look at the question that James and John asked Jesus, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. Now, if that's not self-interest, I don't know what is. And the ten who were indignant with the two were no better. They were simply indignant because they thought James and John might have beat them to the punch. In several places in the gospel, we read that these men would frequently have arguments among themselves over who was going to be the greatest among them in the kingdom of God. Their favorite game to play was so big. Did you ever play that with your kids? You'd ask them, how big are you? And they'd stand on their tiptoes and raise their hands and go, so big. Well, that's what the disciples would do. Peter would ask John, hey, John, how great are you going to be in the kingdom of God? And John would go, I'm going to be so big. And then John would ask Peter, how great are you going to be in the kingdom of God? And Peter would go, so big. And do you know that these men were playing that game even at the Last Supper? While Jesus was preparing 
for the worst night of his life, these disciples were arguing among themselves over who was going to be the greatest among them in the kingdom of God. All 12 of these men were driven by self-interest. They wanted power and position and all the worldly perks that come with those things. They weren't interested in being useful to others. They were only interested in using others for their own selfish purposes. And Jesus rebuked them. Greatness, he said, did not come in the way that these men thought it did. Greatness in the kingdom of God does not come in this way. It doesn't come in the way that it comes in the world. Instead, greatness in the kingdom of God comes through service, through suffering, and through death, especially death to self-interest. James and John didn't know what they were asking for. They had no understanding because in the kingdom of God, greatness is measured by a person's usefulness to God and to others. And Jesus himself is the greatest example of this. In verse 45, it says, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And in Philippians chapter 2, we read, uh, beginning in verse 6, that although he existed in the form of God, that is, although Jesus existed in the form of God, although he was due all the honor that was due God the Father, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. By giving up self-interest, by laying down his life for us, Jesus became infinitely useful to us who were dead in our sins and without hope of fellowship with God and eternal life apart from his sacrifice for us. And it's precisely because Jesus was useful to God in the sense that he was willing to accomplish the work of redemption. And it's precisely because Jesus was useful to us in bringing about our salvation that the text goes on to say, therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Does self-interest dominate your life? Or are you willing to give up that self-interest? Are, 
Are you willing to lay down your life for God and for others? Are you willing to become useful to God and to others? Now, nobody has ever said that serving God or serving others is easy. No one has ever said that serving God and others doesn't cost a lot. No one has ever said that serving God and others is painless. All we can say is that it is useful. But I ask you again, is it so terrible to be useful? Just a word of caution here. We must be careful that we have the right motivation when we are serving others. There are a lot of do-gooders in the world who serve others and are useful to them, but will have no part in the kingdom of God because their motivation for serving others is selfish. They are useful to others because they want to feel good about themselves. They're useful to others because they want other people to think well of them. They do what they do to be seen of men. But this isn't the kind of servanthood that God calls us to. Our motivation for service must first and foremost be the love of God that originates and ends in him. We do not serve God by serving others. We serve others by serving God. Let me say that again. We don't serve God by serving others. We serve others by serving God. First and foremost, the motivation for our service, the motivation for being useful must be our love for God. This is what the great commandment is all about that we read earlier in the service. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But what exactly does it mean to love God? What does it mean to love our neighbor? You know, we use that word love pretty loosely. We love God. Yes, but we love the Razorbacks. Are those two things equal? We love our spouse. Yes, but we also love ice cream and chocolate. What exactly does it mean to love God? What does it mean to love our neighbor? Well, in Scripture, it's not referring primarily to a feeling that we have towards someone or something. It's not referring to a preference 
that we have. It's referring to whether we are being beneficial or useful to the object of our love. Let me give you a couple of examples from uh, scripture back in 2 Chronicles chapter uh, 6, 19. 2 Chronicles chapter uh, 19, verse 2. Uh, I won't give you the context here, but this, uh, it says, And Jehu, one of the prophets, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him, and he said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Notice the Hebrew parallelism there. To help the wicked is the equivalent of loving those who hate the Lord. In other words, helping and loving are the same thing. To love your enemy is to be beneficial, to be useful to your enemy. And then in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter uh, 26, verse 10, uh, there is another example uh, here of how the word love is used. And this refers to King Uzziah, and it says, he built towers in the wilderness and hewed many cisterns, for he had much livestock, both in the lowland and in the plain. He also had plowmen and vine dressers in the hill country and the fertile fields, for he loved the soil. Now, Uzziah was no 18th century romanticist who had a love for the countryside in terms of having good feelings for it. The word, the way it's used here in scripture refers to the fact that he was beneficial, he was useful to the land. He cultivated it, he fertilized it, he harvested it. And then one more example from the New Testament, uh, back uh, in Matthew uh, chapter 5. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talking about loving our enemies. And he, has, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, loving our enemies is doing something beneficial for them, being beneficial to them, uh, praying for them. And God loves his enemies by Again, being beneficial, being useful to them by providing them with the rain that they need. Another example in the New Testament would be the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, where again, love is not described as a feeling or as a, a preference, but it's a, a series of behaviors that are beneficial or useful to the object of our love. So, loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves are being useful to them, being beneficial to them. In other words, we must do what God wants us to do, and we must provide 
things for our neighbors that they cannot or do not provide for themselves. And one of the best ways that God has provided for us to do this is through our work. Through not the work that we as ministers do, but through your work. There are lots of things that God wants done in this world. God is interested in justice. And so he calls some people to be lawyers. God is interested in the sick. And so he calls some people to be doctors. God is interested in the poor. He calls some people to be financiers. God is interested in the hungry. He calls some people into agriculture. God is interested in us showing our domination over creation. So he calls some people to be engineers, to be architects, uh, to be contractors. God is interested in people growing in their knowledge, and so he calls some people to be teachers. God is interested in the arts. He's interested in beauty, and so he calls some people into that field. God's even interested in cleanliness. I mean, after all, in Second Barnacles 3.16, it says that cleanliness is next to godliness. Or maybe that was Benjamin Franklin. But seriously, God is interested in the work that he has called you to do. And a part of fulfilling the great commandment is doing what God wants done, the way he wants it done, and because he wants it done. Look over in Colossians chapter 3. It says here, in, beginning in verse uh, 22, it says, Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Even a slave could fulfill the great commandment by doing what God wanted done, the way he wanted it done, and because he wanted it done. No matter what work God has called us into, it's an opportunity to fulfill the great commandment. And it's an opportunity to fulfill the second greatest commandment, too, by providing services for our neighbors who cannot or do not provide those services for themselves. Think about that tomorrow when you go to work. That it's not for the sake of gaining power and position and the worldly perks that go with those things. It's for the purpose of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Does self-interest dominate your life? Are you primarily interested in power and position 
and the worldly perks that that can offer, sometimes we may not even be aware of it. I remember going back to visit our church in Sherwood, Arkansas a number of years ago, and an elderly woman came up to me, and she said, you know what I will always remember about you? And I didn't say it, but I knew. I knew what she would always remember about me. I was the one who had helped her to understand the tulip. I had helped her to resolve the infralapsarian, supralapsarian controversy. I had explained all the millennial positions to her. I knew what she would always remember about me. But do you know what she said? And she had tears in her eyes when she said this. She said, what I'll always remember about you is that you helped me move. I've never had a pastor do that for me before. The interesting thing is I could remember that day well because what had happened was that a number of men had volunteered to do this and then as the week went on, they all dropped out with the exception of one other person. And I remember telling my wife Susan, you know, these people just don't uh, respect my, my profession. It's fine and good for me to take time off and do this kind of work, but they're too busy, they're too important to do this. To be honest, I felt used. And I remember thinking, lawyers don't help their clients move. Doctors don't help their patients move. Teachers don't help their students move. Why do I have to do this? I'm a professional too. But what this lady said she would always remember about me is that I had helped her to move. What she would always remember about me is that I had been useful to her. That woman convicted me of the fact that even in the ministry, self-interest dominated my life. What I really wanted was power and position and the worldly perks that come with those things. And I had to be reminded of what Jesus says here in Mark 10, 35 through 45. Greatness in the kingdom comes through serving and suffering and death, especially death to self-interest. Greatness in the kingdom of God is measured by how useful we are to God and to other people. No one ever said that serving God and others was easy. No one ever said that serving God and serving others did not cost a lot. No one ever said that serving God and others was painless. All we can say is that it is useful. But I ask you again, is it so terrible to be useful? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, these are hard words for us to accept. 
It goes so contrary to the way of the world. It goes so contrary to the desires of our heart. But Father, we know these words are true. And Father, we desire to love you. Help us to be humble. Help us to be obedient. Help us to give up self-interest. Help us to be willing to lay our lives down for you and for others. To the glory of Jesus Christ and to the glory of God the Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.